Adela. Today's sermon is a glimpse of the kingdom. It's taken from Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 17. Ready for a sermon from the book of Zechariah. We're in chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at a glimpse of the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, as envisioned by Zechariah so many thousands of years ago. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to gather together as your people to worship you, to have your principles shared with us from the Word of God. Help us, Father, to live joyfully. Help us to live, Father, obediently. Help us, Father, to live expectantly because of this text. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you think of contrasts, what comes to mind? Black and white? Sweet and sour? Socialism and democracy? Christianity and Islam? How about the contrast between Hiroshima and Nagasaki pre- and post-atomic blast? You can put those pictures up if you will. Or London pre-blitz and post-blitz? Imagine for a moment that you are a young child in Jerusalem, just after Nebuchadnezzar's shock troops have burned every home, every house, the king's palace, and the temple to the ground. The whole city has gone up in smoke. The landscape, as far as you can see, is littered with corpses. Now, 70 years later, You have returned from exile in Babylon. Yet, that once vibrant, beautiful city looks exactly the same as the day you left it, minus the corpses. It's littered with rubble, stones covered with weeds. Now imagine the mindset that you're to have to rebuild this city, to rebuild the temple and the infrastructure. Wouldn't you ask, where do we begin? Where does the construction start? And then you are informed that the temple needs to be built first. Wouldn't you lose heart with all that, looked, all that you looked at and before you? Well, last week we read the words of the prophet Zechariah, who answered a question from a delegation sent from Bethel about the need to continue the ritual that had been practiced in Babylon, a ritual of fasting and mourning concerning the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He gave two portions to the answer to their question last week, and this week we see the third part of his answer to that delegation. The delegation had asked why God had not blessed them since they had faithfully kept this ritual of mourning and fasting. Should they continue this practice? Chapter 8 gave them a positive response to their question, which simply was, the Lord's purposes for his people remain unchanged by any observance or lack of observance of any ritual. It doesn't matter whether you keep them or you don't. The plans and the purposes of God do not change. Now, Zechariah will reveal the plans that God does have for his people in order to encourage them to continue to rebuild the temple and the city. 
This encouragement includes a vivid picture of future plans. The coming new Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign during the millennial kingdom. This vision of God, conveyed by Zechariah, is intended to cause the people to then get back to the work of rebuilding and to look forward to a better future. This vision, however, of a revitalized New Jerusalem stands in stark contrast to the reality that they experience. So this third of four messages is filled with promises about the future, the future blessings of God upon his people. As we examine this text, I'd like you to focus on several words and phrases of great importance to the meaning of this text as we study it. Now, the reader will not be able to understand the message of God without seeing the importance of these particular words and phrases. The text is divided The text is then divided into seven separate parts by the recurring phrase, as you will see, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord. The phrase is used, and you can see in your scriptures, if you have it open to our text, Zechariah chapter 8, and I believe it's on page 944 of the Pew Bible. The phrase is used in verses 2, 4, 6, 7, 9, and 14. So it's very important. That phrase reveals something about God and that he is at work in their midst. But this is just the first of several important words and phrases that are key to understanding his third message. The next important word found in the text is Jerusalem. That occurs six times in our text. The city is near and dear to the heart of the Lord. It is the city of God. It is the holy city. Geographically, this city is central in Israel and in the Middle East. Jerusalem has not changed. It is still the city of the Lord. Jerusalem is atop a mountain range that runs down the center of the nation from the north to the south. It will be the center of conflict raging between empires from Zechariah's day to our day. Now the second name of importance that's found here in this text, the second word, is Zion. Zion is located on a mount in the center of Jerusalem. It's on a rising slope that dominates the city. It is used twice in our text. Zion was always the place of the worship of God. It is on Mount Zion that the temple of God stands and the presence of the Lord is set to reside. The next term or word of interest and importance is the emotionally charged word that we find here, jealous. The word is used two or three times, depending on your text, to describe the emotions of our Lord. He is jealous for his people Israel. He is jealous for his city. He is jealous for the place of worship called Mount Zion. The next word of import is oftentimes misunderstood by people. It is a word that always describes a faithful small amount of believers, a remnant. These are the members of a much larger group. It's used here in our text three times to point out those who have responded to the work of God in their lives. It was a remnant of believers who returned to Babylon to rebuild the temple and the city. 
the remnant was made up of members of all 12 tribes of Israel, including those from the northern tribe and those from the southern tribe. Here, in the remnant, we see the outworking of God's grace, God's love, and mercy. God will keep his promises to the remnant. Now, at the present time, some might not think that God has kept his promises to them, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. But God is at work. He is busy fulfilling his plans and purposes for Israel. Dispensationally speaking, the Lord is not working with Israel today, but has begun and continues his work with the church. The Lord is calling out a people for his name, the body of Christ, the church of Christ. The church and Israel are completely separate entities with completely separate programs. The Lord today is building his church. But when that process ends which I pretend not to know the time or the date, he will then begin his work in fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. That is yet future. We call that the end times. God's prophetic calendar is not running in accord with any man's timetable. The Lord sinks his plans and purposes to his prophetic calendar and not to any human circumstances or governmental changes or governmental pronouncements. The truth is, the Lord doesn't give us dates or a timetable for the coming rapture or for the coming second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is then, when his prophetic calendar calls for it, that the Lord Jesus will return and once again he will ensue, fulfilling his promises, those plans that he has for Israel They will return to the land that he has promised, and he will fulfill all of those things that he has said he would do. Now, the first return was of 60,000 Jews in 536 B.C., and they came with the task of rebuilding the temple. That is a picture, a foretaste of a greater and larger return by Israel at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ's thousand-year reign, the kingdom of God. Let's look at these promises of God given at this time to encourage the remnant of Zechariah's day, but will ultimately be fulfilled when the Lord returns in his second coming. So with that said, with that as our basis for this time together in Zechariah, would you turn with me to page 944, 945 in the Pew Bible, or Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. In your Bible. Here we see again that Zechariah is receiving the direct revelation of God when it says, The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying. This gives the Jewish people of Zechariah's day the assurance that this is the divine message from God. It is authentic and authoritative for them. In the first six verses of this chapter, God will promise that he will rebuild. Israel will be rebuilt as he indicates here. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord of hosts says, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Here we have that first phrase that I said was important. Thus, 
saith the Lord of hosts. This indicates that Zechariah is not simply giving a message out of his own heart or mind, but that this comes directly from God. He is simply the conduit that the word of God flows through to the Jewish people. This is God then sharing encouraging words to the people who were down, depressed, um, needing a word from the Lord in order to get back to work. Notice that they are to understand that the Lord is jealous of their affections. When we think of jealousy, we usually connote some kind of a negative emotion. But here, the emotion is positive. God is possessive and protective of his people. The Lord is jealous for them. Not only is he jealous for them, but notice he says that I am jealous for Zion. The Hebrew word there speaks of a zealous jealousy, if you will. There's no evil connected to this. This is the God of the universe expressing his great love for his people and for his place of worship. We might compare this to a man's love for his wife. No other man better lay his hands on a man's bride or he shall suffer the consequences for it. The father loves his children. He loves Israel. So much that the literal meaning of the term used here for jealous means he burns with passion. The Lord's desire is so great that he burns in his love for them. Notice in verse 18. uh, I I should say, notice uh, in Joel chapter 2 and verse 18 that it also underscores this truth. The Lord is zealous, and it tells us there specifically, for his land and his people. So we see this is consistent across all of the prophets uh, in this time period. This is not human, human jealousy. This is a great jealousy, a zealous jealousy, an exceedingly jealous God who is looking out for the ones that he has chosen. And anyone who dare harm them will receive great wrath. The Hebrew word there used for great wrath is chima, which means an intense heat or fury will come upon them. The Lord will come down on a t- as a ton of bricks on any of those who would attack or harm his beloved Israel. God is consistent. That's one of the things I love about the scriptures. God is always consistent. And when he says he's jealous with a great wrath, he's being consistent with all that he has said before. Many of you will remember how consistent this is with his plans and purposes for his children Israel. You'll recall the words that he spoke to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, moving on to verse 3, we read, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Remember, he had promised in chapter 1, if they returned to him, he would return to them. Now he says, I will return to Zion and dwell with them in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. The promise here is clear. The Lord will return to be worshipped at Mount Zion. The question for the Jews is when? Will it be in the prophet Zechariah's day? Or is this simply foreshadowing a greater fulfillment later on? Obviously, I believe both are true. 
He will once again manifest his presence to his people once the temple is completely rebuilt. But there is a coming day, a greater day, in which the Lord Jesus Christ will reign personally from the throne that is in the third temple in Jerusalem. He will sit atop his holy mountain called Zion, and he will rule and reign in truth and justice. The psalm, royal psalm, chapter 2, speaks of this in verse 6 when it says, As for me, capital M, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's pretty clear. One day coming, a day that has not happened yet, not in 70 A.D., nor ever up to this point in time, has any king called Jesus sat on a mount called Zion and ruled. That has not taken place. So this anticipates a greater fulfillment of the promise that can only happen in the millennium when Jesus is there ruling and reigning. Once again, this is completely consistent with the message of all the prophets. For example, Joel and Obadiah spoke about this coming day. Then, says Joel, you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion on my holy mountain. So Israel will be holy. In Obadiah, on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. This clearly speaks of the coming day in which the Messianic kingdom has been inaugurated in a restored Jerusalem, and Jesus is ruling and reigning. It will then and only then be called the city of truth, and Zion will once again be a holy mountain. This is a change from its present state. There is no temple on Mount Zion. There's that ugly thing called the dome on the rock. Today the city is filled with mayhem, just like every city in the world. Zion however, is a word that is a synonym that's often used not just for the temple site, the hill that's there, but it's also used of the people who will live in that place. It is used that way in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6, as I said. It's used that way in Joel chapter 2 and verse 1, which says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain, and let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Then in Isaiah 2 and verse 3, And many people will come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. That has not happened to this day. So the Lord loves his children. He loves Israel. He loves the city of Jerusalem. And he especially loves that place called Mount Zion. I've had the privilege of staying there for several weeks of my life. Being on Mount Zion, anticipate. I always hoped that the Lord would return when I was there. It hasn't happened. Hopefully, when we go in June of 2017, some of you are with us. Hopefully, on that day, the Lord shows up. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's in that place that the Lord chose to manifest himself to the world. It's in that place that he will again come again and show himself to the world. So I ask you, should we love Jerusalem? So I ask you, should we love Jerusalem? Should we love the Jewish people? It's part and parcel embedded in the heart of God. He loves that place and he loves that people. We should too.
Now in verses 4 and 5 we learn that during the millennium the Lord will usher in a time of peace and security. Look with me at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women. Sue, are we there yet? Getting there? Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. Here we have a picture that has never happened and is not happening today of peaceful living conditions in Jerusalem. The old folks, the old men and women can sit around outside on their porches or in their chairs in the streets and live without fear nor anxiety. You know, I bet the bulk of you would be afraid to walk down the streets of Detroit Chicago, Tacoma, Seattle. But here, the people are in the streets, the old people, and there's no fear of mugging or any evil being done to them. You know, old people are vulnerable to attack. But when the Lord is ruling and reigning in the city of Jerusalem, there will be no fear. It will be a holy city. This is a picture of peace and security that has not yet happened, but will take place in the millennium. This is part of the blessing that God promises to the Jewish people. If you read the news, you know that no Jew can walk down the street of Jerusalem today without the fear of being attacked by a Palestinian terrorist. They are stabbing them in the streets on a daily basis. Did you know that? It's probably not in the mainstream media, but it's true. This is a pivotal pivotal text. Zechariah chapter 8, and particularly these verses, concerning the coming millennial era and what it will be like. It has not yet happened. 70 AD was not the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus' coming. It will only occur when the Jews have been regathered and restored to the land. Then they will know peace, security, and the love of God. This is clearly yet future. These millennial blessings have not happened But it will. Jerusalem will be safe for the old people. And also for the very young, as we learn in verse 5. Look with me there. And the streets of the city were filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Now, if you've ever been in the old city of Jerusalem, the streets are pretty small there. It's hard to drive cars down. But the kids do play there. But they're always looking out for danger, aren't they? You who have been there know what I'm talking about. This community will be filled with seniors and children living in harmony and safety, dwelling in peace. This is an essential ingredient of the, of the vision that Zechariah has from the Lord of a restored community. Children are part of a vibrant new Jerusalem. Old folks are a vibrant part of the new Jerusalem. Now, There are probably not very many kids in Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. 60,000 have returned, but probably not family units. Think about it. If you're dwelling in Babylon or Persia and you're doing well financially, your families are doing good, they're growing like yours is, would you want to get up and move to a destroyed city and have to rebuild a temple and the, the infrastructure? Of course not. So there's probably not many old people nor children in Jerusalem at the time of this prophecy. So this is a a future time. In fact, we know that the city of Jerusalem was in shambles. 
But Isaiah says that's going to change, just like Zechariah does. In chapter 65, the prophet Isaiah predicts this. No longer will there be an infant who lives for a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and they will inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit, for as a lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Future. Hasn't happened as of yet. The prophet Isaiah foresees, just as Zechariah does, a beautifully restored city with children living long lives and growing elderly. This is a beautiful picture we have here of what Jerusalem will be like when we are there with our Lord Jesus. Notice in verse 6, let me ask you this before I go there. Do you believe this? Do you in your heart believe this? This is our hope. I'm not hoping to go to heaven and hang out on some clouds as the morons in Hollywood predicted. That's garbage. My hope, and I trust your hope, is based on the scriptures that you will go to a literal Jerusalem and Jesus will literally reign there and we will live in harmony with Jews as one people dwelling together, fulfilling the plans and the purposes of our God. That's my hope. Notice verse 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, it will be too difficult in my sight? Will it also be too difficult in my sight? Obviously the answer to that is no. Do you really think there's anything too difficult for God to accomplish? The remnant thought it was. They're in Jerusalem. The city is in shambles. They've been given this impossible task from their mind to rebuild the temple. And they're saying it was too difficult. And God says, will it be too difficult in my sight? Come on, I can accomplish anything. I built this world, says God. I spoke it into existence. Ex nihilo. There's nothing too difficult for the Almighty. But you know, we're human. We tend to think that you know, just as a side, I have to tell you, every time I hear it, it drives me up a wall. We could never send 11 or 18 million illegals back to their countries. Have you heard that from politicians before? That is the most asinine statement I've ever heard in my life. We are the country that put a man on the moon. We defeated the Nazis. We defeated the Germans. We defeated the Soviet Empire. And we can't round up 18 million illegals in our country? That's just plain stupid. It's plain stupid to think that the Almighty God cannot get a temple rebuilt through his people despite their naysaying. It's idiotic. You're talking about Almighty God. What's he so excited about? You've got a powerful God. We are a powerful nation. We can do anything we put our minds to. We put a man on the moon in nine years. And then you get an idiotic government since then, and they can't do anything in 40 years except end NASA. You get the government you elect. You get the leadership you put into place. The country might be going downhill, but we don't need to. 
We can trust our God. We can have a great and powerful church, but we have to believe the truth of Scripture. Stop listening to the voices out there that don't believe the Bible literally. God's going to rebuild Jerusalem. There's no such thing as a divided Israel. That's satanic. There's no such thing as a two-state option. That's satanic. I've left my text, by the way. God's going to do this. He's going to take a remnant of Jews. He's going to rebuild Israel. It's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be peaceful. No more rockets raining down. No more stabbings on the street. No more Arabs attacking every 10, 15 years. Because God's going to do it. He can accomplish his purposes. Here the term remnant, used here in verse 11 and 12, describes a small number of people who trust in God and can get it accomplished. You know, we as a church, we think we've got to have lots of people, lots of money, big buildings. God turned the world upside down with 12 men. He just needs motivated people. Disciples who love him and are willing to live on the edge. Are you? Think about that remnant for just a minute. Remember when God sent a flood in the world? The Bible says there were lots and lots of people living on planet Earth. And how many survived? How many believed God and trusted in him and lived because they believed his word? They got in the ark. They'd never heard of rain before. Eight people. I'll get the fingers right yet. Eight peoples. A remnant. There's only ever a remnant left of believers. So let me personalize this a bit. Do you believe Do you really believe? People talk about the church in the United States. The church isn't what you think it is. It's not this conglomeration of denominations. It's only a small number of people who truly, truly believe, who truly trust in Christ. Israel was a great land with lots of people. Only a few really believed, ever. Only a remnant. Remember, was it Elijah? Lord, there's only me left. And what did he say? No, the whole land's filled with people, right? Isn't that what God said? No, he said, there's 8,000 others just like you. You see, this text is just a foretaste of what is to come, a picture of what is to take place. The Jews, they were consumed with fasting and mourning over the past. Oh, the city was destroyed. Let's have a holiday. We'll... We'll fast, we won't eat, and we'll mourn. We'll throw ash cloth, ashes on our, ash, on our clothes, and we'll just, we'll just sit around and mourn over what happened 70 years ago. You know, people like that in the church today, too. They sit around and they mourn what the church used to be like. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, the church used to be so great. We had every pew filled, and uh, the pastor was great, and you know we were on the radio, and the, we were getting ready to go on TV, and then everything fell apart, and it's, now we're just a small number of people. You can take that viewpoint if you want, but God wants to do something great through a remnant. 
through a few who will believe and trust in him and count his blessings to them. The Lord was going to restore his people, both physically and spiritually, but they must believe and trust in him. So let me switch gears here just a bit. Do you know how many Jews are alive today in the world? 20 million. Do you know only 6.3 million live in Israel? We've got more Jews in the United States, 6.8, more in New York than they have in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. There are more Jews alive in the United States than in Israel. There's a time coming, though, when the Lord says that all Jews will return to the land of Israel. Israel will be regathered. Look with me at verse 7. In the millennial kingdom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. He's promising here that he's going to bring them back to the land of Israel that had been scattered all over the world. That's all right. If he yells, I can yell more. We find this same thing in many other places spoken by many other prophets. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11 and then in chapter 43, he says this. Then it will happen on the day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who, will rem- who remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and they will regather from the dispersion to to Judah and from the four corners of the earth. Do not fear, for I am with you, bringing my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. There it is. The Lord will save his people and regather them again to the nation of Israel. Hasn't happened yet, has it? There's 6.8 million of them living here in the United States. It hasn't happened yet, has it? What has happened is the world's tried to kill a Jew again and again and again. But God's going to save them from the evil one. If you are anti-Semite, you hate God. You are anti-Christ. God loves Israel. God loves the Jewish people. God loves Mount Zion. If you are anti-Semite, you are anti-Christ. He's going to regather his people from the east and from the west. That's called a merism, by the way. If you don't know what figures of speech are, you need to go look them up and study them because the Bible is filled with them. A merism is when you use a part or a small part of something to stand for the whole. The east and the west here stood for those people that had been dispersed in the dysphoria or diaspora, however you want to say it. So east and west simply is talking about the directions on the face of the earth. This is a universal restoration of the Jewish people from wherever they are on the compass back to the land of Israel. The broken relationship that they had with God was going to be restored. They will be my people, says the text. They will be my people. The prophet Hosea and many other prophets say the exact same thing, except in different words. Sometimes even the same words. 
In Hosea chapter 2, it says this, I will betroth you, Israel, to be mine forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you in my faithfulness. And then, and then, you will know the Lord. Israel is going to be restored in faith. Then they will know the Lord. They don't know him now. If you've been to modern Israel, you know, you know almost all the Jews there are atheists, agnostics. Oh, yeah, a few of them are radical with the curls, you know, more than reformed. Just, just a small minority of them, though. The Lord says, I'm going to restore my people to faith. Notice verse 8, I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faith and righteousness. So here we see the people of God will be regathered and Israel will be converted. That's what Jeremiah wrote about in Jeremiah chapter 31. He's going to place within them a new heart. Those captives, those exiles are all being brought back to Israel at some point in time in the future and there's going to be a new heart planted within them. Listen to the to the words, Behold, days are coming, says Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house, get this, of Israel, that's northern kingdom, and the house of Judah, that's southern kingdom, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the past, that's the Mosaic covenant, and I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after all those days. I will put my law within their hearts, and I will write upon it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That hasn't happened yet. Still yet future. The promise, though, is quite simple. They will be my people. This reminds them that God had kept promises to them in the past. He delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. Do you know what he said to them once, once they left Egypt? This is what he told them. Obey my voice and do all according to that I have commanded you, so you shall be my people, and I will be your God. What did they do? Broke the commands, didn't they? They broke the covenant. They turned their backs on the Lord. They walked away from him. Then in a book that we just studied in 2014, do you remember when we went through the book of Hosea? Anybody here remember all that labor I spent going through the book of Hosea? Please tell me someone remembers. Oh, there's three hands. Praise the Lord. In that book, the Lord called upon the Jews, calling them, you'll remember this, Loami, remember? For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Why? Not because God's mean, but because they broke their promise to him. He then punished the Jews for their idolatry. He sent them into captivity, into exile. And later on, later on yet, the Lord would punish the Jewish people for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. God rejected them for rejecting his son. And he sent them into another dysphoria, another diaspora into the world. But in the millennial Millennium, the Lord Jesus Christ will regather his people from around the globe and restore them to their former place of blessing in the land of promise. And in the 
next eight verses, we see those promises given to encourage the remnant that's in Jerusalem at this time rebuilding the temple. What are those promises? Well, first the Lord says the temple's going to be finished. It will be rebuilt. Secondly, the Lord promises them that the land will be free from future invaders. Thirdly, he promises them that the land will be prosperous. Fourthly, he promises that the nation of Israel will once again be a blessing to the world rather than the curse that it is now. And finally, he promises them that the Jews who obey him will experience the abundant life that God offers. That has not happened as of yet, my dear ones. It's a future blessing that's being spoken of here. At that time, in the millennial kingdom, in verse 9, we read that Israel will be refreshed. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Let your hands be strong. You are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets. Those who spoke in the day that the foundations of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be rebuilt. He promises them that the temple is going to be rebuilt. He promises them, the Lord says he's going to encourage them and strengthen them in their hands so that they can get the task done. They simply need to obey. Now, some of you will recall from my previous preaching, others of you who have gone to sleep might have missed it. But I clearly said that when the first wave of exiles returned to Jerusalem in 536 B.C., they immediately got to work laying the foundation of the temple, remember? And then, because of pressures from hostile neighbors and internal negative sinful practices that they brought back with them from Babylon, the work came to an end, came to a complete stop for 16 long years. And then Zechariah came about and encouraged the people to get back to it and other prophets as well. Now, verse 10, he describes those 16 intervening years, does Zechariah. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. And for him who went out... Or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies, and I set all men one against another. This is what it was like during those 16 years. It was tough on all the people. There was no work. The economy collapsed. Unemployment skyrocketed in the nation. The leading economic indicators were all horrible. The marketplace came to a standstill. You couldn't leave the country and you couldn't come in because you'd be attacked by enemies. So there was no security. But this is all going to change. In the time that is to come, the Lord will bless his people. But they must commence the work once again in the temple. And they did. It resumed, as you know, in 520 B.C., as we read in verse 11. But now I will not treat this remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Hey, they've gotten back. They're back to work. They're busy, says the Lord. I'm going to lift my hand of discipline upon them because they've finally responded. They've committed again to doing the work on the temple. And now they can anticipate my blessings. That's what the Lord says. He's not going to treat them like he treated their forefathers because they've gotten back doing the right thing. He would bless them. For there will be peace for the seed. Verse 12. And the vine will yield its fruit, and the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all of those things. There's going to be a transformation in the land. From the dump it was, 
the rubble and the weeds to a place of blessing with fruit and wine, productive fields. The Lord was going to transform the place. They would now enjoy peace and the abundance that they desired in the land. I've been to Israel. Most of that place is just arid desert. It's not what this text says. They might have done some wonderful things. They put some garden hoses around trees and they're growing really good. It's true. There's lots of oranges and stuff. But it's only in little sections of Israel. Here the promise is they shall, the seed shall be prosperous. You know, there's no potable water in Israel. They're drying up the river. What's the river called? Jordan. The waters come out of Mount Hermon. They flow through the river of Jordan. The river of Jordan, literally, Sue, you'll attest to this, and so will Carol and Ron, gets to be like this big in a place because they're taking all the water out to water all these plants. This describes a time when there will be abundance of everything all over the place. Notice, the vine shall give her fruit. The vineyards are going to produce. The the ground shall give her increase. The soil is even going to be transformed as God turns it into productive, fertile land. Water? There will be plenty as the heaven shall bring forth an adequate flow of rainfall is the promise here. We see here that God promises these people for their obedience to his will that he will bless them. The remnant that does right, who believes and trusts in God, will be blessed. Now, the remnant that's spoken of here is those that have survived exile into Babylon and come back and now honor him with their behavior, and they have become a redeemed people. A redeemed people. Look with me at verse 13. It's clear that these promises are to a redeemed people. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, again, northern and southern kingdoms, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do you think the world thinks of Israel as a blessing right now? If you do, you're smoking some of that weed that they sell down here over at the marijuana medical place. Because the world hates Israel with a passion. But in the time to come, Israel's going to be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong, says God through Zechariah. They have not experienced this yet, but they will in the day of the Lord. They will in the day of the Lord. They will when the Lord removes the curse off of Israel and they become a blessing to the whole world. Right now, the nations of the world hate them, especially the nations of Esau. Anti-Semitism is alive and well. The Jews are a curse, proverbially. In 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 7, it says that the Lord will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name and I will cast out of my sight. So Israel, here it is, will become a proverb, a byword among the people. They hate the Jews. They still have the elders of Zion, that protocol thing goes around. It was written 70 years ago about how bad the Jewish people are. The Russians used it. The Nazis used it. And it's still popular with the Arabs. The Jews are a curse. We've got that BSD thing going on in the United States, don't we? 
boycott, sever, divide, I don't know whatever the stupid words are. But it's all anti-Israel, cut them off financially. Israel are hated, but sometime soon, when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom, Israel will be renewed. Israel will be renewed, according to verse 14. Before, thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I purposed, get this now, to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I have not relented. Okay, get this clearly in your head. Judgment came upon the Jews, and it wasn't by accident. It was God disciplining them on purpose. I remember when my dad used to get mad at us. We'd done something wrong, me and my three brothers. He would take out the belt and tell us to go to the basement. That didn't happen by accident. I didn't just happen to bump into my dad downstairs and chase us around with the belt, trying to hit four boys at the same time, moving targets. Got to be humorous after a while. He didn't really want to do it after a hard day's work. But he knew the boys needed it because they had gone beyond what they were told to do. So the Babylonian captivity was not an accident. It was purposeful for God. God was following through on the warnings that he had given his people. If they continued to disobey, there would be consequences. The pre-exilic prophets, those that wrote before the exile, gave out these warnings over and over and over again. And now we've seen the fulfillment of those prophecies. But God also promised that he would bless them. The Lord always deals justly with his children in each and every dispensation, whether it be in the old or the new. His standards do not change. While it's true that we as believers in this dispensation, the dispensation of grace, are not under the law of Moses in the old covenant, we are still under the righteousness of the law. It's always wrong to steal, no matter what dispensation you might live in. The will of God always remains the same. It's always his desire to develop godlinesses in his people. As he said, be ye holy as I am holy. That's the stated goal in the Old Testament. It's the stated goal in the New Testament. But that just doesn't happen by accident. It takes a process. We are renewed day by day. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in his second epistle, do not lose heart, he says to them. Even though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. How often? Day by day. We see this same principle written to the children of Israel in verse 15. So I have again purposed. Notice it. Now God has purposed that in these days he's going to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah Do not fear. The Lord has purpose to renew them, to bless them. But that blessing is conditioned. It's purposed by God, but they must be obedient to him. These blessings have not yet come about upon Israel, for they still are disobeying him. They've rejected the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is written, though, as it already happened, though it's certain. You can write it down in the book. It's so certain that it's written in the past tense in the Hebrew. You see, disobedience always brings about discipline. And obedience brings about blessing, no matter what age you live in. How can they 
behave? How can they obey? It's the same for them as it is for us. Nothing is ever left to doubt or to wonder about. Notice verse 16. And if you're wondering when we're going to get done, we're almost there. Notice what God says to his children. It's applicable today just as it was then. These are the things you should do. Don't you like that? Uh, What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live my life? These are the things you're supposed to do. Speak truth to one another. Judge with truth. Judgment for peace in your gates. They are to obey the will of God based on his character. They're not just to obey outwardly. Rituals are stupid if your inward life doesn't comport to God's character. We're to obey inwardly. The Mike, Micah talked about this, another prophet, during the same time when he said this, As he has told you, old man, do what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Hosea says the exact same thing in chapter 6, verse 6. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, says the Lord, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Obedience to the Lord brings blessing in every age. And it begins with speaking the truth. Speaking the truth in all situations. Truth is to be a character trait of believers. We need to be honest and forthright with our neighbors. Truthfulness is how we show ourselves to be different than other people. Secondly, we are to judge with the truth. That is, to, we are to make right choices. We are to base our life on truthfulness rather than perceptions and prejudice. If we desire peace within our gates, that's a simple metaphor for our houses, then we need to be truthful. Peace is the byproduct of truth in our relationships. And truth comes from the inner man. It exposes the motives of the heart condition, according to verse 17. Look with me there, we're almost done. Let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. We, we know that the Lord hates liars. Satan is the father of all lies. But let's be honest with one another about this. People can misuse the Lord's intent as stated in this text. The truth is every one of us tells white lies. There's a difference, however, between a white lie and a big lie. There's a difference between telling a story that's not true and perjury in court, is there not? This is not about your husband denying he ate the last chocolate chip cookie in the cookie jar. We are not to devise evil against one another based on silly things. I've seen a lot of devising of evil in churches. Some people call that power struggles. That's when someone takes your words out of context, twists them and turns them to mean something totally different than what you intended. This is not what that verse is speaking of. Everyone needs to watch their heart and the deeds that flow from it. If we are right with God, then we will judge with truth. We will be honest, not to honor formalism or ritualism. The Lord doesn't really care if you were baptized by sprinkling or dunking or whatever it is. He cares that you've obeyed his word. Now, do I believe in baptism by dunking? Yes. I hope you understand what I'm saying. 
People have an agenda and they exhibit it through twisting people's lives and the things they say and the experiences they've had to be something that it was never meant to be. We replace truth with ritual. Just as the fathers, the forefathers of these Jews, continued to practice Judaism. They did all the right things, but their hearts were not with God. They might have been dunked, circumcised, done the Lord's table, and all that other good stuff at the right time, at the right moment, but they were not right with God. Because they didn't do it truthfully. What does it mean to be holy? God wants his people to be holy. And in fact, we read in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord telling his people then, you shall be holy. You shall be to me a priest of key, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the New Testament, that's echoed by, the, by Peter in his book when he says, you have been called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may may proclaim the excellencies of he who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So how can we apply this to our lives today? What does this mean for you and me? We must place godly character above program, worship forms, or individual desires. We must choose to be holy as he is holy. We must choose it. Remember, the Lord is jealous for a holy people. We need to understand that discipline is part of the process of becoming holy like him. We can learn from the Jews as to how we're not to act and behave. They are examples for us, but we shouldn't model ourselves after them, should we? Or we'll be building high places up on Mount Rainier. They're an example for us, good and bad. We should keep in mind that the Lord has a future planned out for us, a great and awesome future. But until the day that he ushers that kingdom into reality, we should be serving him and loving him with the expectation of his promises being fulfilled in that kingdom. Finally, and some of you are probably saying, praise God. Finally, we must love Israel. We must love the Jew. We must have a special place in our heart because God does for them. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the book of Zechariah. Use these truths in our lives to give us hope, anticipation, expectation. Help us to live holy as you are holy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.